today I'm sitting with my friend Cameron. We have been friends for, let's do the math, uh, 15 years? Sounds about right. Yeah. Well, so, maybe not. What? Close to. Close to. Close to 15 close years. Close to 15. And we're going to be talking about creativity and inspiration. And one of the reasons for that is Cameron is one of the most creative people I know. I don't know about that. You know how to do it. Not really. Most I'm, things. Lots of things. Lots of creative things. I can, I can do a lot of things, but I can't. I don't tend to think that I do a lot of things well. That's because you're crazy. Because <laughs> everything you do, you do well. I, well, I do a couple things well. I, I try at a lot of things, and I fail at a lot of things. And there's one or two things that I think I do okay. Okay, and let's and let's say what those things are. Um, I don't really know what those things are, to be absolutely honest with you. Um, I'm sitting here ready to say what they are if you're, if you're really going to struggle. Well, I, I draw. Um, I try to paint. I usually fail when I paint. In your eyes. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know what else I do well. There's you're a, a lot photographer. Of things that I, there's a lot of things. Your pictures are amazing. There's a lot of things that I try to do well and that I'm continuing to improve on. And that you I, do a lot better than most people. Uh huh. Okay. That's fair. But I don't really feel like I do it as well as I would like to do it. Okay. Then that brings me to a question almost immediately since we're talking about creativity and inspiration. There are, and we've talked about this before, there are pictures out there that you're like, oh, I should have took this. Right. Don't those pictures totally inspire you? Um, sometimes they do. And do they make you grab your camera? No. They actually, this is the weird thing about inspiration, right? For me, anyway. Sometimes I'm super inspired by what I see, and uh, I think to myself, I should go and try my version of that thing. Um, but then I say to myself, but that thing is damn near perfect, so my version will never compare. And so all too often, inspiration that I look at, things that inspire me, they tend to actually kind of kick me out of the creative flow. It doesn't get me into yeah. the creative flow. I have another friend who says that about music. He says, here's another song. He'll like share a song and he'll go, here's another song I should have written. Somebody already wrote it. And so he, he kind of sees that as, oh, damn, I'm never going to write that amazing song. It already got written. Right. Right. I, I just don't see it that way. The Sistine, but that's fascinating. The Sistine Chapel's already been painted, right? <laughs> I look at all of the paintings of the classical masters and, you know, Michelangelo and Da Vinci and Raphael and, you know, Degas. I'm inspired by all of it, but I often think they've already done so much. What could my voice add to it? So for me, I don't take inspiration from other artists. That sounds weird, but I don't, at least not in the same medium. Huh. I tend to look at those things, like I said, I, I look at them and I say, that's already been done and it's amazing. And uh -huh. there's no way that my voice could add anything to that, right? So when I start looking for inspiration and I start to try to get creative, I look at things that are outside of the realm of art to inspire my art. Oh, okay. So for example, I listen to a lot of music to inspire color. I listen to, you know, heavy metal whenever I'm trying to paint things that that has a lot of wild color to it. Because to me, I start to get inspiration. I start to see the notes 
that I'm hearing as some sort of spectrum of color, uh-huh. right? So, so I, I tend to do that, but I don't paint in color a lot. I really don't. I uh-huh. spend a lot of time in black and white, but music, I, I pull a lot of inspiration from music, a lot of inspiration from words and, and the way that people put together lyrics and different things like that. But I, I pull even more inspiration from music that has no lyrics. So oh, really? I listen to a lot of uh, blues music that has no lyrics. I just like to listen to a lot of blues licks and kind of the way that they're creative in the way that they put together their music. And from that, I start to get creative in the way that I put together my lines. Huh. Right. I start to think that music went clear over here and I didn't even expect that to happen. I often will go, well, my line can go over here. If the music can go there, my line can go there. When I look at other artists and I start to see what they're making or painting or creating, I can't use that as inspiration. I just can't. Uh, it, it makes me feel like I just need to put the tools down. And so I have to isolate myself from that or else I just never, I never go anywhere with it. Yeah. If I don't. Not to change the subject, but I find it, I've always find it fascinating how different we are. We meaning people, not you and I, but how different we are when we don't realize that there are differences to be had. Like I I sent you a picture recently on Instagram Uh that this lady's boyfriend took of her and she's, she's all posed with those flowers and everything. I find that photograph super inspirational to me artistically. It's an artistic photograph. I was surprised how inspiring it was, even just as a photo for taking a picture in the future. And so I literally relate one thing to another in their similarity. What you're saying is you keep the similarities. Well, you don't have the similarities. What inspires you here? Does this thing clear over here? I, I just find that so fascinating. And another thing too is that when I do photography and I look at photographers and I look at like poses and different things like that, or when I'm looking at landscape photographer like Ansel Adams, or I'm not actually looking at their landscapes. I'm looking at the way they saw the light. Mm-hmm. I don't really evaluate their compositions. I don't stop to question why did they put that tree right there? Uh-huh. Why is that mountain cut off right here? You know, I, I don't uh-huh. do that. Yeah. I, I absorb the image for what it is. I enjoy it for what it is. And then I just kind of go, okay. But when I go out into the field to shoot my own landscape photography or something like that, I don't get inspired by landscapes. I really don't. I can stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon and go, it's a hole in the ground. Because <laughs> that's a thing that I do. What I do, though, is if I'm standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon, I see light. I get inspired by the way the light touches the tree or the way that it comes through the leaves or the way that it you know, spills through a cloud. Like That's the kinds of things that inspire me. Uh-huh. I very rarely get inspired by the Grand Canyon. It's just not a thing yeah. that, that happens to me. I, I kind of feel like... The Grand Canyon is only beautiful because I can see it, and I can only see it because of light. And everything else is 100,000% secondary to light. Like the thing that I'm photographing, the person that I'm photographing, whatever the subject matter is, if the light looks like crap, yeah, the photo looks like crap. Yeah. And so I find, I find a lot of inspiration from light. I do tend to get in these weird spaces where... I get stuck in these loops in my head where I'm just observing light. I've gone out into the field to take photographs, landscape photography or whatever, and never taken a shot. 
because oh, wow. it gets stuck in these loops of observing light and I forget to document the light. And some of those days are some of the most fulfilling days that I ever have in photography. And I come back with not a single photo. So those are the kinds of things that uh, I use light for inspiration in those ways. I think, you know, people are beautiful um, when they're on camera. Objects are beautiful when they're on camera. But they can become far more beautiful if the light is right. And if the light is inspired in some way. My inspirations are always very disconnected. Always. Uh, I don't think I've ever... There's maybe been three or four things that I have ever viewed uh, and witnessed that spark emotion in me. I already mentioned one of them earlier, the Sistine Chapel. Sistine Chapel brought me to tears uh-huh. as I was looking at it in, in real life, you know, standing under the ceiling and, uh-huh. and seeing it. But there's very little else visually that sparks that kind of emotion in me. However, music... I'm always inspired by music and I'm always emotional about good music and the messages, the stories that music tells. And so that's one of the reasons that I tend to gravitate towards music for my inspiration is because I think they, they're fantastic storytellers. I get so inspired by the way that they construct lyrics that mean so much more than what they say. And that's where I pull a lot of inspiration for my art. And for my drawings and my paintings and different things like that. So I actually don't know if you play any instruments. I did when I was young. Played the saxophone when I was young. Okay. I would have loved to have been a musician uh, professionally. I just didn't have the natural aptitude for it. Like, I would have had to work ten times harder than anybody else to be average. Oh. I just don't have that kind of work ethic in me to work <laughs> to work ten times harder than anybody else to be <laughs> average. So... Midway through high school, decided to stop pursuing music as a thing in my life and just decided I would spend my time focusing on art, uh, visual imagery. So You reminded me just now of something you said to me and we went to Al's concert. You were praising his skills. And I believe it was before anything had started. So I didn't even know what I was going to hear or anything. And you're praising his skills. And I went you really sound like you're describing how I see you. And then you said, I believe I have imposter syndrome. Yeah, for sure. I haven't stopped thinking about that to the point that I want to visit that more with more people. Because since you said that, and it's not a new term to me, but for some reason, now it's on my radar. I feel like a lot of people say things that are similar to that, that make me go, huh, I wonder if that's imposter syndrome. And it seems to be pretty prevalent. Do you know that it might be? And can you elaborate on your having said that? Yeah, I, I do. I do think I have a pretty acute case of imposter syndrome. If you don't know what an imposter syndrome is, it's essentially the idea that no matter how good you are at something, you'll never be as good as someone else. And so you'll always kind of feel like an imposter at what you're doing. Um, because somebody else can do it better or whatever. And I tend to f- generally feel at any given time, as I start any project, whether it's a painting or a drawing, whether it's a photography project, whether it's a film project, which I've, I've worked on a number of film projects, both commercially and personally. Anytime I start one of those, I think this will be the one. This will be the project that everybody figures out that I'm a fraud <laughs> and that I have no idea what I'm doing. 
What? Like that's a, that's a thing that I do. Every but you time totally know what you're doing. Yeah. So, like for example, I shoot a lot of commercials. Uh-huh. Uh, that that's a thing that I do. I work for a in-house corporate video team. I, I kind of run the team, and and we shoot a lot of commercials. I'll show up on the set, and I'll tell my crew what I need them to do. I'll I'll tell them what the light looks like, and what we're going to be shooting, and what I want the setup to look like, and all that kind of stuff. And then once I've given everybody their direction. I leave the set and I go find a place out by the grip truck usually or out by a fence in the back of the set. And uh, about 50% of the time I throw up while I'm out there. I can't control it. I'm, I, you feel I, so uncomfortable. Yes. And I feel like it's like this is going to be the worst project I've ever done. It's all oh going to fall gosh. apart. It's all going to be horrible. It's all going to be this will be the one that everybody knows that I'm, I've been faking it for years. And the listeners need to know I, I sit here with my mouth agape. I've known you long enough to be like, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's a th- it's a real thing. Huh. And then I go back in. I get it out, out of my system. I go back in and I breathe. You know, I pop a piece of gum so people don't know that I just oh, yacked it out by the fence. No. And I go in and I I do what I need to do. And I make the project, right? 99% of the time, I hate everything that comes out of that project. And everybody else loves it. Maybe. I've had a number of projects that have been highly criticized by a lot of people, uh, particularly in the corporate world. You know what I mean? Hmm. You know, the tricky thing about corporate stuff is everybody has an idea of what it's supposed to look like. Everybody has an idea of what that story is supposed to be and what you're trying to tell and, and what they want the viewer to do and all of that kind of stuff. And so it's really easy when you come back with a corporate project for everybody to turn their criticism to it and say, well, it's not going to work because of this or it, did, it wasn't as effective because of that. Or the viewer's not going to do what we want them to do because you left this part out or you didn't put that part in correctly or whatever. So there's always a criticism of that kind of stuff, right? But I can almost handle that criticism a lot better than when people criticize my personal work. Because my personal work is not made for anybody else. Yeah, I don't do it for the masses. I don't do it for people to like it. I don't do it for the accolades. I do it because it's... It's part of my soul. It's part of a thing that I have to do. It's uh-huh. a thing, like creating imagery or creating paintings or drawings is something I'm compelled to do. And so when I create those things and you put them out into the world for people to see, just to share, and some sort of criticism about it comes back, those are almost harder to handle than the corporate stuff. Because the corporate stuff is like, you know that's going to be criticized. Yeah. Right. It's got a number of rules. It's literally inevitable that it's going to get criticism. Right. Whereas when you're doing a personal piece and you're just, you're just making whatever you want to make, you're making whatever you see in your mind and all of that. And then someone comes back and goes, you did that wrong. Uh It's like, who said I did that wrong? Uh, nine times out of 10, I just want to tell them to F off because it's like, you, you didn't see what I saw. Uh That's what I saw. Uh-huh. You know, and that's what I created. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on. It's like, how do you figure out how to take criticism and not have it kill your creativity? How do you learn to say, well, you're entitled to your opinion, uh-huh. but I'm also entitled to not listen to it? Yeah. You know, that that's a hard one. So a lot of times when you're dealing with creative people and creative things, uh, they can tend to internalize that stuff a little bit too much. And I know I'm one of them. I internalize that stuff a lot. And pieces that I love that I've created, I'll get criticism that may or may not be warranted. And often... But you don't have the ability to filter 
useful versus non-useful? No, I do now. Like 20 years ago, no. 20 years ago, oh. it was, you know, I, I received a criticism about a piece and it was just, that was the truth. Huh. And that's Whoa. the way the piece stood huh. in my mind at that point. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've learned to not care what people think about me personally. And I've learned to not care what they think about my work. People now will give me a critique on a piece, uh, here and there. Uh-huh. Uh, I will take what I find valuable from it and I'll leave the rest. You've actually made me think of a question as almost a side point. Are you a competitive person? <sighs> yes. Um, but only in certain things. Okay. Cause in your head, you're not Michelangelo. Therefore it's pointless. You know, it, you're kind of going, I'm not Michelangelo, so I'm useless. The reality is you can't be Michelangelo. So I kind of was like trying to line things up. And I thought, I wonder if he has a lot of competition in him. I have no competition in me. And I don't look to anybody and go, well, I'm not so-and-so, so there's no point. Right. I'm more where music is concerned. I listen to songs or there are certain artists out there. And what I say about those artists is, they're writing the songs for my life. I don't compare myself to them. And knowing I don't have competition inside me makes me wonder if that's partly why. That it's not me going, I'm not as good as so-and-so. Because there isn't anybody I try to be as good as or to beat or to be better than. There isn't a lot of comparison for me for some reason. I'm not sure why. I'm a competitive person. I can say that with all honesty. I am a competitive person. Um, I don't play board games for a reason because I, I'm incredibly competitive and it ruins my life for weeks when, when a board game. And your family's life probably. Oh yeah. My family's just like, Oh, don't play with that guy. Right. So I'm a competitive person. However, I don't tend to think that I'm competitive with other people when it comes to art or photography. I try my best not to compare my final pieces to anybody else. Okay, good. However, I compare my pieces to my previous pieces. So my competition for art is within me Uh and what I've done in the past. And I will tell you that I create probably 20 pieces in between each piece I share. And it's because 19 of them weren't as good as the last one. They weren't as good as the one that I thought was good. I put them in a drawer and that's where they live. Now that I create digitally, I don't have to put them in a drawer. I just hit delete Uh and nobody ever sees them. So if I, you know, if I go through 20 drawings and nobody has to see them and I don't have to keep them and I don't have to have them around to haunt me with how bad they are and I can just delete them. While that sounds very destructive in from the standpoint of like, being able to be creative and create. It's very cathartic because I can create and I can remove that from my life if it's not up to my standard. Do you usually give yourself time though to to come to that decision of delete? Yeah, usually. Yeah. Oh, okay. There, there's usually, you know, a month or two that I kind of mull it over. Okay, good. Because I've noticed, it sounds silly to say, but in a lot of photographs that I take, 
and it is only Instagram, but I'm like, should I share this? No, I'm not going to share it. And then, and then, um, I'll come across it on accident, like a couple weeks later and I'll be like, this is an awesome picture. Like my opinion has totally changed all because it's two weeks later. There's yeah. really no reason for it. And it's like, I'm going to share this. Yeah. This is a great photo. Why did I not realize how great this photo was? And at the time, I know absolutely that I looked at it and went, yeah, not good enough. So I'm just not going to share that. When it comes to drawings or paintings or, you know, digital drawings or whatever, I give myself a little bit more time on the digital drawings because they take so many hours. Uh-huh. You and know. you're like, do I really want to throw away those hours? Right. Uh-huh. So I give myself a little bit more time on that. Photography, on the other hand, it's a, you know, a couple weeks, maybe at uh-huh. most. And then they get deleted from the hard drive forever. Uh-huh. They're just gone. The only exception to that is whenever I'm doing someone's portraits, if I'm doing, you know, uh, portrait photography in any way, I hang on to those for 10 years, every photo. Oh, good. Good, bad, or otherwise. But the reason for that is, is I don't ever want the client to kind of go, well, do you have anything different? Do you have any other shots that are a little bit different than this or uh-huh. a little bit different than that? And it would suck if I told my client, oh, no, I didn't. I deleted all those because I thought they sucked. I don't tend to show them to the client if I think they're bad. Yeah. Um, but every once in a while, I'll have a situation where they're like, do you have something just like that, but slightly different or something where I may be looking that direction or this direction? Uh-huh. Uh, and so but those come in handy. Also, as a kind of side point argument, how people see themselves are going to be completely different from how you see them. And so what you chose to show them, you can't actually say would necessarily be the photos that they would have chosen that they like best had they seen all of them. True. But one argument I would have with that, though, is I tend to think that people see themselves in the most negative way possible. But all the more reason when they find a photo that they like of themselves, if it were one that you were like, I wonder why you like that one. The fact that they really like it means they should have it, right? Well, I'm not saying you you should show everybody every photo, but I'm just saying, you know, the way we see ourselves is so different that there could be an amazing photo, air quotes, that you took of them that they never see. Sure. That they would have loved. Ten years ago, I would do a photo session and then I would show 60 photos to the client. You pick your favorite, right? Inevitably, they would pick the worst shot in the whole group, always. Oh. It was like a rule. It, it, it blew my freaking mind every time it happened. You're almost making my point. They would be like, oh, that one. I love that one. And it's like, that is the worst photograph in the whole group, not <laughs> only from the perspective of the way that that person looked in that photo, but from the perspective of it doesn't have great composition, the lights didn't quite fire right. I actually learned that if I pared those down from, say, 60 photographs to 30, and it was the 30 strongest photographs. They would find photographs they loved of themselves that were also great photographs. Okay. Right? But if you show them a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And this is why I've come to the conclusion that people generally pick photographs that they look the worst in because they have a bad opinion of the way they look. You know what I mean? I don't know why they would gravitate towards those. They just huh. always pick the worst shot of them. Huh. Guys don't care. You can show them 40 photographs that are amazing and they'll pick the first one they see. <laughs> they do not care. Uh-huh. So anytime I'm photographing a bunch of guys or, you know, a family and dad's standing there looking at the photos, he's like, I don't care. That one's great. It's good. Let's go. Yeah. Women, on the other hand, they care and they comb over them and they comb over them and they comb over them again and then uh-huh. they look at them again and then they want to see them in comparison to one another. And, and that can be. You know, since we're on the topic of creativity, that can be a real creativity killer. 
because then you start to get into this rut, particularly when you're talking about portrait photography, where you're like, well, I know the pattern. So I'm going to take these five shots uh, because those are the five shots that everybody always loves. They are like removing your fun. Right. Uh-huh. Right. And it's like, I'm going to take these five poses and these five shots because those are the five shots that are most selected. And you almost become afraid to say, hey, let's try something different. Let's pose this way or let's shoot from overhead or let's, you, yeah. you kind of become afraid of that because too many people don't see themselves as beautiful in their own mind. And so when you start showing them angles that they're not used to, they start to think, well, that made me look even less beautiful because that's an angle that I'm not used to seeing. And it's an angle that uh-huh. I don't think anybody would like. And they don't I judge totally the photo for what the photo is. They judge the photo for the way they feel about how they look in the photo. Uh-huh. Right? It's, it's a very weird thing. And so that thing actually inhibits. It doesn't set me free in a way that's like, you trust my creative vision. I find you interesting and attractive and I can put you in the light that's going to make you look amazing. And so you're going to trust me with everything you've got to take these amazing photos. And that very often is difficult to do. Every once in a while, you'll find that magical unicorn of a client that's just like, oh, yeah, I I love your portfolio. I love your look. I love your aesthetic. I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do, and I'm probably going to love it. I think I maybe have had five of those in 20 years that are just like, do your thing, and I'm going to love it. Unfortunately, in the area that we're in, most people aren't after creative photography, particularly when it comes to portraits. They're just after... I haven't had a family portrait in 10 years and I just need a family portrait and I want to pay the least amount of money possible. And we're all just going to stand in matching clothes in front of the tree. And we want a picture of the mountain behind us. And, Uh you know, they're very prescriptive in what they want. Uh And so you have to execute that thing. Yeah. And I think, and I can think of a million family photos I've seen like that. Right. That's the norm. And so that's why I gravitate away from doing portrait photography. Mm -hmm. I would much rather work with. Uh, aspiring models that are trying to build portfolios that yeah. need something unique and different so yeah. that someone will notice them. I would much rather work with... Like your shower shots. That's right. pretty cool. Yes. I recently did a shoot with a young lady who does a lot of theater. And that was fun because you could say to her, you know, give me a mischievous smile. And she knew what that meant. And she could, oh, cool. she could kind of create that kind of mood uh-huh. as you're shooting them. Cool. Um, regular people, you say something like that, and they're like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> they don't know their face well enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. You tell them to smile, and often you just get this really weird, kind of cheesy, I got to show all of my teeth in a smile, and it's like, you Yeah, know, I've learned, learned to say things like, I need happy eyes. Right. People mostly know, like, if my eyes are smiling, I know what that feels like. So, yeah. Well, and I tend to find average people that I'm shooting with, if I tell them not to look at the camera, if I tell them, look over here, find something over there to focus on while I take some shots, they freak out. Huh. They start to feel incredibly self-conscious. They start to huh. feel like, well, no, when you're getting your picture taken, you look at the camera. You know, it's oh, like, huh. no, this isn't your fifth grade, <laughs> you know, class portrait here. We're trying to represent you and who you are uh-huh. and represent something that's interesting about you. It's kind of hard. It's it, there's very little creativity in portrait photography because of the fact that I've been so involved in art and so involved in photography and involved in, you know, observing beautiful light and learning how to shoot film and shoot like motion shots and leading shots to try to tell stories without saying a word. 
I tend to look at people and instantly notice what's unique about that person. I instantly notice what's beautiful about that person. But to try to get them to feel like that's the truth yeah, is hard. Yeah. Like they just don't want to accept that someone might find them beautiful. Yeah. And to be clear, beautiful doesn't always mean aesthetically pleasing. Sometimes I look at people that would be considered traditionally unattractive and I find them beautiful. I find them beautiful for who they are, for what they do, maybe the the strange way that they do their hair or something like that. And and you put those people in the in the right kind of light and tell their story. Well, I find it incredibly beautiful. And some of those pictures are what draw me in because they have character. Yeah. And they have meaning and emotion that goes beyond the aesthetic. But try, try someday to convince a random person you see on the street that they would look beautiful in film and beautiful in front of your camera. And you will find yourself in an exercise in futility yeah. uh, because they just won't ever believe that that's the truth. Yeah. Cause self view is that big a deal. And we make up so much of the story. We tell ourselves that other people couldn't possibly know how we're seeing ourselves. I spend a lot of time talking about that uh, with self esteem and that's nobody sees you the way you see you. It's literally impossible for anybody else to see you the way you see you. You're the only person who can't actually walk into the room and shake your hand. So you can't meet you and see what other people are seeing. And who they're seeing is also very likely different for who they are. So they're going to perceive you differently depending on their own life experiences, what they've gone through. Right. And from a photography perspective, one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in my life is show photographs to people who don't think they're beautiful and hear yeah. them say... The most common phrase is, oh my God, is that me? Uh That happens a lot. And it's like, of course that's you. That's the way I see you. And I think the camera is a great equalizer. It makes average people look amazing and it makes amazing people look average. Like it, it equalizes everybody out. And from there, it's all about the way that the person taking the photograph sees the light and their perspective on how they see that person and, you know, the creative choices that they make for lenses and F-stops. One of the things I like to do is I like to take people and photograph them, you know, 10 different ways, 10 different F-stops, 10 different lenses, uh-huh. different lighting setups. And I do that as a exercise to train my brain and, and train my eye to see things slightly differently. And kind of understand, you know, what a long lens does to a person and what a wide angle lens does to a face and, you know, different things like that. So I don't think that people understand when they're selecting their photographer, you know, most of them select the photographer based on price. They don't look at their photographer and ask the question, what's their point of view? Like, what is their perspective of which of how they see the world? And I think that's the interesting thing about photography is that you can have 10 photographers photograph the exact same thing from the exact same vantage point and you will have 10 different photographs. So each photographer has a perspective and a point of view. And that's why I say it's pointless to compare yourself to any other artist, any other photographer, any other anything is because most people end up with a style and they don't even try. It's just who they are. And, and they have a style. When you were talking earlier about landscape photography, and you said that you don't look at why did he put that tree there? 
my brain went to this photographer that I follow on Instagram. I think his first name is Lars. For him, it's all about light too, and how he captures what he captures. In fact, I'm sure I've shared them with you on Instagram. He just has a style all of his own. There isn't anybody out there doing it, and it just probably has everything to do with who he is. You know, nobody has to try to be like him or not be like him because we all end up with our own style, with our own way. Right. Well, and I I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the imposter syndrome, right? Because I fully know that 10 photographers will take 10 different photos. I get that. You can even have 10 photographers with the same lens and the same vantage point, and they will all take a different photograph. Uh But at the same time, my imposter syndrome says, but your voice and how you took that photograph is no more important than anybody else's voice that took that photograph. That's where things get weird for me when it comes to creativity. I don't, I don't generally think that I have a unique perspective. You know, my voice is not going to go above the noise. It's just part of the noise because it's not unique enough from everybody else. That may be true and it may only be true to me. Uh-huh. So I was just going to say, and it may be an absolute crock of shit. Huh. That's just the way that my brain functions. That's yeah. the way that I, I. That's like when people see something and they go, now Lee, this totally reminds me of you. And I'm like, Oh, how nice. And I'm still going, I wonder why. For example, when you come into my house, some people are like, oh my gosh, this house is so you. Well, it's all I know. I've made my house what it is. And so in a way, it's my everyday. I'm definitely not seeing it the way other people are coming into it and seeing it. And so it's similar to that. You're about the only person that ever sends me anything and says, this reminds me of you. Oh, really? About the only one. Huh. Um, Which is another thing that kind of feeds into that idea of imposter syndrome, right? Oh, that, shoot. That, that I am not, no, not that you do it, but like, I am not telling a unique enough story that there are enough people going, oh, I remember that thing. But then again, I'm not talking to everybody, right? I, I'm generally an isolated person. I, I don't tend to associate with large groups of people, and I don't associate with other creatives. Uh-huh. I just don't. And it's not because I don't like them. It's because I just, I don't know. I just, I just don't. Doesn't happen that way. Like I said earlier, I don't take inspiration from them. Huh. So I tend to just kind of be like, yeah, what? You want to hang out and draw? Okay. Huh. That's weird. You know? Huh. But if I get to know a person really well, then that is a thing I do. I, I often draw with people all the time when I know them really well. I would not be the type of person that goes out to, generally goes out to a meeting or a gathering of other artists. I just don't do that. It kind of feels like the bucket of crabs, right? Every artist is trying to break away from the pack and get noticed. When you go to a large gathering of other artists, it's just a bunch of artists trying to pull each other down so that they get noticed at the top. And Uh that feels weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's not. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I am not a self-promoter. I'm completely yeah, awkward. Here. I'm completely awkward when it comes to self-promotion. I put my stuff out into the world. I put it on social media. I put it on my website and I just hope people stumble across it. But I'm not the guy that's like, Hey, look, I just put something on my website. You know? Yeah. I have a real hard time with that. Yeah. I, I suck at that so bad. Yeah. Which is why, like, 
I have very few people following me on Patreon and very few people that follow me on Instagram. Uh, you know, things like that, because I just, I just am not good at telling people that I create things. Yeah. You wouldn't know I'm a writer on Instagram because I will post a picture and hashtag now. I very seldom actually have something to say with a picture. And I think that has everything to do with how I see myself. I really put myself out there on my blogs. If you give a shit, you'll go there is kind of how I see it. And if you're going there, then you don't care how much I say, because you're literally going there because you want to hear my quote unquote voice, whether it's listening to it or reading it. Plus, I really believe that if you're interested, you'll look. And if you're not interested, you won't. And I'm not going to force anybody to be interested in what I have to say. The stuff I write isn't necessarily for everyone. We can't all relate to Natalie. I'm not saying that. So I generally just assume that saying so little is just fine. Right. If if social media would have been part of my life in my 20s, it would probably be different. Because in my 20s, I was I knew I was the best artist. I knew I drew amazing things. I knew I painted amazing things. Like, I knew that with every fiber of my being. Huh. It, so if social media would have been a thing then, I probably would have a very large following because I would have been telling everybody about it. Huh. Now I know what I didn't know. Photography is largely physics. Art is largely a learned skill. I don't believe that being able to draw or paint is a talent. It's an acquired skill. You know, so my, my perspectives are different now. Huh. Part of that is because I have taught people who couldn't draw but stick figures to draw technically accurate, lifelike portraiture. Huh. It is not a talent. It is a compulsion. And when you're compelled to do it, you will get good at and it. Anything it. you practice, you yeah, will get good at more and more. So my ability to draw these lifelike, realistic things is simply an outcome of the 10,000-hour rule. Uh-huh. Proof of that comes in the fact that I decided to make illustration my career in my early 20s, and I ended up hating it. I hated the fact that I painted and did these technical illustrations for money. It felt dirty in some way and doing things for other people the way they wanted them done just killed, killed the passion for me. Many artists feel that way. So I, I literally didn't draw anything for 10 years. Uh. I put the pens and pencils down. I put the airbrushes down. I put the canvases away. I, I bought a special cabinet that had a lock on it and I put it all in there and locked it. And then about 10 years later, I was like, I used to be good at that thing. And I picked up a sketchbook and I drew something and it was the worst thing I'd ever drawn in my life. It was like I was five years old all over again. Like you unlearned. Yeah. It, it was almost like I had lost, lost the skill. Huh. And so I put it all back for another three years, three, four years. And I decided, eh, maybe, maybe I can get good at it again. I started drawing again and got right back to where I was very, very quickly. There's a lot of muscle memory and synapses in the brain that are just there. Was there inspiration from somewhere? Not really, no. I mean, I had just been to Italy, and I'd just seen the work of the masters and all of that kind of thing. And, and so there was a little bit of inspiration there, but it wasn't like, a, it wasn't like oh my God, I ha-, the compulsion wasn't there. Uh-huh. It was, uh, I used to be good at that thing. I wonder if I could be good again. It was a curiosity more than anything. And so I drew something. You know, the other thing you got to realize is that I had just spent the last 
When I put away the illustration, that was when I really took up photography as both a career and as a, as a hobby. Uh-huh. When I started drawing again, after I knocked the rust off, the thing I noticed was that my drawings were actually more accurate, more detailed than they were 13, 14 years earlier. And I was like, that's really weird because I haven't drawn anything in that span of time. Huh. But what I realized was that I had spent that same span of time observing light, being a oh, photographer. Yeah. And so now I had just built this new set of synapses that, that just allowed me to recreate light when I drew in a more accurate fashion. Uh-huh. And so that's the other reason that I think it's not a talent. It's an acquired skill. I, I was able to draw more accurately represent light in my drawings because I had been observing light a lot more than I did when I drew. Because when I was drawing a lot and when I was painting a lot, I was observing my subject. I was observing the proportions of their face and the way that it, you know, looked or I never observed the light. When I put it all away and I started observing light for a number of years and then I came back to it, all of a sudden everything looked better, made more sense. The shadows were better. They were more accurate. And, and it was because now I had a better understanding of how light worked. And so when I was trying to draw it, it was like, oh no, light doesn't do that. It does this. When light hits this surface and it rounds off that face, it goes like this. You know, when it hits that fold or that wrinkle, it does this. It was very strange to me that I would become better at art by not doing it. And so that kind of fed into my idea that if you take the time to observe the things you're trying to create, rather than create them, you can learn more faster, in my opinion, than just drawing, right? Paying attention. And it didn't take me long to knock that rust off within... It was maybe three or four drawings before I was right back to where I was. And I've seen people go from really, really bad drawings to amazing drawings in less than a year. But the people that do that are the ones that are really, really disciplined about observing what they're trying to replicate on paper or trying to replicate on canvas. And doing it regularly. And doing it regularly, Mm -hmm. yeah. There are a thousand people out there that will tell me that I'm absolutely wrong and that it is 100% a talent. I disagree. However. I will concede this. The people that create amazing things, that's where the talent lies, is in what they see in their mind, not in their ability to replicate it or to put it on paper. It's what they see in their mind, the story that they're able to tell. That's where the talent lies. The fact that they have a unique perspective and they can tell this story that nobody else has thought of and that nobody else can see. Whether or not they can do it accurately is a matter of practice. But whether or not they have a story, that's where the talent is. Uh-huh. And so to me, when people say, oh, you're incredibly talented, it's like, why? Because I draw portraits? There's nothing unique about that portrait. It's just something I saw and something I replicated. Huh. Whereas when you're talking about a artist like Frank Franzetta or Julie Bell, the stuff they come up with, the things that they put onto canvas. That are from in the head. Yeah. There's no visual reference for it. It's just, here's this thing, and I'm going to depict it in such a realistic way that you can't question whether or not it exists. Uh-huh. That's the talent. Becoming technically accurate on how you do it is an acquired skill. Maybe my imposter syndrome makes me believe that, and maybe that's really the way it is. I, I don't really know. Yeah. So in the last few years, I've tried to work on the idea that that there are things in my mind that need to be on paper or on canvas, and those things don't exactly exist. The question is, can I take something that doesn't exist in my head 
and make that a reality on on paper or canvas. I've that, seen you do that, though. <laughs> that's what I'm working on right uh-huh. now. I don't know if I'm willing to say that that's a talent or if it's just acquiring a new skill. I'm not sure. I'm kind of 50-50 on that, you know. Have you found that stepping away from things that you created for a chunk of time and then going back to it makes you like it more? No. Less or same? I don't know how other artists feel about this. This is an interesting question. But for me, the longer it exists, the less I like it. Huh. I'll never be more excited about a piece that I create than five minutes after it's been signed. (laughs) After that, it's just downhill from there. Huh. Right? Because I start to evaluate it from a creative perspective. I start to evaluate it from a technical expertise perspective. I start to evaluate it from a compositional perspective. I start to break it down and look at the, well, is that shadow too dark in comparison to everything else? Is this too light in comparison to everything? So I start to break it down a lot and I start to dislike it more and more as I do that. So the trick for me, especially when I create digitally, is not to get it printed. So that way I don't have to look at it every day. (laughs) It can sit in my hard drive and then some days I'll open it up and look at it and then I'll close it and it'll be fine. Uh But I know... You know, like they say, we're our own worst critic. Oh, yeah. And every artist is going to hate whatever they do all the time. So, Um, One of the things in regard to inspiration that I wanted to talk about, which could take one minute, two minutes, ten minutes, I don't know. And it's kind of basic, but both of our birthdays are in November. I'm not sure, I don't know enough about star signs to know when one star sign ends and another begins, but we're both Scorpios, right? Yeah. Okay. I have found, and I wondered if it has anything to do with the fact that I'm a Scorpio, over and over and over again, that when I'm in the shower, I get amazing ideas. Stick me in water, and I just start having ideas coming at me. Or if I'm thinking of something that's possibly a slightly creative idea when I climb into the shower, as you know, like I'm always changing things with walls and rooms and furniture and stuff in my house. If I have an idea, stick me in the shower and it just absolutely blossoms to the point that I sometimes go, I might need to just get out of the shower and write this down because there's just so much. Also, sometimes later when I've been out of the water for a while, I will revisit that idea and go, "Uh, why was I so excited about that? So take me out of water and it's no longer quite so amazing. I just was curious if you have anything like that as it pertains to inspiration. It sounds stupid to say that water inspires me, but water feeds my inspiration. How about that? And don't say Pepsi. (laughs) Don't say Pepsi inspires you. (laughs) I don't know that I have anything like that that does that for me. What about fire? You like fire. The only, well, I I would have to say the closest thing is actually sleep. I don't get a lot of sleep. I've been getting more lately. Oh, good. For reasons that we won't talk about, but four to five hours is kind of my, that's kind of my norm. Uh You know, five hours is kind of my sweet spot. I can function really well if I get five hours uh, during the day. When I sleep, I see a lot of the things that I draw that are unique, that aren't portraits, that you could really say is true art. I see those things very vividly in my sleep. If I remember right, you have violent dreams too and battles and... Yes. It it would be fair to say that the reason I only get five hours of sleep is because my dreams keep me awake. 
Huh. It would be very fair to say that. So I have very vivid dreams that are often very violent, very dark. Maybe it's trauma from my childhood. Maybe it's too many horror movies. Because you do love horror movies, that's uh, likely. The reality is, yeah. I can count on probably both hands the number of times I've had happy dreams. Oh my goodness, in, really? In my entire life. Some of the art that I make, as you know, kind of has that dark theme to it. It has that kind of strange, otherworldly... Those ten, those things tend to come straight from my dreams. Those are Those are characters... Huh. That I see in my dreams, I would I would have to say that my dream states are probably the most. I w- I wouldn't even call it inspiration. It's kind of the kind of the blueprint, the reference. Yeah, it's it's yes, it's the source material uh-huh. for what I put on canvas. Huh. One of the other areas that I find inspiring is people who create and, more importantly, write. Maybe because I'm more of a writer than any other creative, when I read them or I listen to them, I feel as though I want to be writing, as though I want to be creating. It's not like I want to copy them, but I literally do feel inspired and feel clearer. That's maybe the best way to put it. If I listen to really awesome stuff, I found this with Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. I bought the audio because I like listening to her read her. And when I listen to that... She just made me feel so good that I was like, ah, I want to be writing. So although she didn't directly influence a color, again, air quotes, for a direction for me, she just made me feel so good that I was inspired to go and do. That happens a lot with her. There are some musicians who just generally write songs and they don't inspire. And then I'll come across lyrics. Because one of the things I kind of daydream about writing is is music, but that's not the way I write. And so it's kind of like this untouchable thing for me. And so I'm so impressed by really great lyrics. I don't know if there's a direct parallel for what I do. When I watch movies, that can sometimes make me feel like I need to make another movie. And you watch a lot of movies. I, I don't yeah. know that I wa- I know anyone who watches as many movies as you. So, so there are times when I see things and I'm like, that was a, that was a great movie. I feel like I want to make a movie, but that's very fleeting for me. It doesn't actually drive me to action. I just kind of go, Oh yeah, I should do that. Huh. And that's where it kind of ends. I made my one and only short film in 2011 and I haven't made or written anything since. I've got a couple of ideas that kind of kick around in my head. And after I see a great film, I kind of pick one of those ideas up and kind of go, oh, let me just kind of tinker with this a little bit. But it never goes beyond that. It's always something I hope I do again. What if I turn one of my books into um, a script? <laughs> do you want to make a movie for it? Filmmaking for me is an incredibly personal thing. I've always wanted to be a full-time filmmaker. I've always wanted that to be my career. Yeah. But the one reason I've never done it is because I don't want to do it for anybody else. Oh. Right? I don't want yeah. to be a filmmaker for a big studio. Uh-huh. I feel like if I if I ever became a full-blown filmmaker, it would be independent film all the way, uh-huh. all day, every day. I feel like I would be the guy that if someone come along and said, hey, we'll give you a $100 million budget to make this thing for Fox Pictures. No, thanks. Huh. 
I'm just not, I'm not interested in, uh, I'm not interested in telling other people's stories, I guess is my Okay. Point. Yeah. I understand that. I would have a really hard time directing someone else's script, but I think that's because I would have a hard time catching the vision for someone else's script. As a storyteller myself, I always want to tell a story that is unique to me that I understand that I know how it's going to function and story th- those types of stories to me are very intimate and when I tell them I want to be intimate with how it's told. Yeah. And I think I would have a hard time telling someone else's story that same way. I think there are directors out there that are amazing at it. One of my favorite directors uh, is Ridley Scott and he is just an absolutely amazing storyteller no matter what the story is. Yeah. Right? But his best stories are his stories. Uh-huh. You know, like Alien is his story, and it's one of the best that's ever been made. Uh-huh. But then when he's directing other people's stories, they're still great films. They're just not as good as the ones he makes for himself or that he envisions completely. That may also very well be a cop-out answer to stop me from making another film. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that lives as a possibility in the back of your mind. <clears throat> right. This yeah. is the story I'm telling myself, so. Right. Uh-huh. This kind of touches on a whole other issue uh, when it comes to my creativity. What medium do I really want to work in? Is it film? Is it photography? Is it paint? Is it pixels? I have no medium. I call my house my canvas. I understand not wanting to have a medium. That's where my internal struggle always is, is what medium am I, what medium am I really good at? I would argue I'm not good at any. So isn't that possible that, I mean, do you have to be really good at any? I don't think I'm really good at any medium. Going back to the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo was a sculptor. That was his masterpiece was the sculptor, the Pietas. But can you really say he was only a sculptor? No. Compare his paintings to his sculpture. There's no comparison. His sculpture is that much better than his painting. He was a master of sculpture who dabbled in paint. Really, really, really well, though. But I would argue not as well as his rivals. I would argue that Raphael was better. Da Vinci was better. Raphael did not get the Sistine Chapel because... Michelangelo had a better relationship with the Pope, not because he was the better painter, Uh right? So my point is, is there a medium that I am really, really good at? I don't know that I am. And I don't know that I believe that I am equally great at all of the mediums that I dabble in. Right now, I can't say this is going to sound like a contradiction to what I just said. Right now, I can't say that any of those mediums are far superior than any other. All I can say is that I'm equally good at all of these things, but I am not great at any of them. And so I don't yet know what my medium is. I'm still exploring that. And at 42 years old, that seems like a weird thing to say, that I have yet to find my medium. Not to be. And I'm continuing to, to, continuing to explore it. Two reasons. that. That doesn't seem strange to me. I've never really had direction, nor have I wanted direction, really. I've never wanted a career, which I think making that statement in a job interview recently was a bad thing to say. But <laughs> I have never wanted to go to school and learn one thing. In fact, 
I taught myself how to cut hair when I was young. And because I cut so much hair throughout high school, people were saying, so are you going to be a hairdresser? And I'm like, God, no. I don't want to be doing something I enjoy doing as a career, being forced to do it. I explore things I'm interested in, and I don't actually think I'm good at any of them. And number two, I believe there are so many people out there, I'm going to say seemingly, just to be kind, who seemingly have none. They have no medium. They have no things they dabble in at all. In a way, they can't even make a partial statement of what you stated because they're just living. They're just floating around and many of them are even going to school and many of them might even have a direction in mind there, but they're still, they just don't seem to have anything they're good at that there's just so much floating. I think there are people like that and I'm not being mean when I say that. I just think they exist. And so people like you and I also exist where there is no one thing that we're great at. We're just pretty good at a few things and kind of average at other things. And for example, every time I rip out a bathroom and then I build the vanity that holds the sink, I absolutely have to create the plumbing. I have to create it from scratch. Do I think I'm amazing at plumbing because of that? Uh, hell no. Am I good at it? Maybe not really. I don't know that even good is is acceptable. I can do it. So if I can do it, is it a skill? Uh, Maybe not. And yet other people who come into my home think it's shocking that I rip apart a bathroom and then rebuild and do it all. They're like, well, you know how to do plumbing? And I'm going, well, it's not hard, you know? So I kind of do know how to do plumbing. I know what, what my limits are. Right. But again, it's an acquired skill. <clears throat> not not to say that I'm trying to disparage what you're saying, but plumbing is not a talent. But it's, is it an acquired skill? I, I don't call it a talent, but is it an acquired skill or is it just common sense? Because, well, you know, water I, has to flow and not leak. Right. Yes. But, that, but that's what I'm trying to say is a lot of people just don't have the, they just don't have the wherewithal or the gumption to just go, I can figure this out. I think that a lot about art is that a lot of people just go, well, I can never do that. So they don't even try. Well, that's why I say there's no there's no special talent to it. It's just a matter of do you have an aptitude to want to try? And somebody like you and I can see exactly how the plumbing is not a great skill. And yet plenty of people act as though the fact that I not only had a go but succeeded and I'm not leaking, they're like, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I'm going, yeah, not really. No. Uh-uh. I have a hard time with the people that say that's amazing. I really do. I know a lot of artists like revel in it. Like they, oh, these people love my art. And they love hearing about it. that. And a lot of artists like that. That's the reason they make, right? That's the reason they create. Like I said earlier, I create for me. And if I happen to create something that I think someone else might find value to, I put it out in the world. I struggle with the accolades for a different reason. If a person says, oh, I can only draw stick figures, so you're amazing. Well, if you can only draw stick figures, how can you appraise my skill? Right? You have no point of reference. To know how easy or hard it is just because you're only doing stick figures. Is that what you mean? Right, right. Um, so, so my question is always like, well, how would you know that this is amazing? How would you know that this is really hard versus you could probably learn how to do this in a course of a month? 
You know what I mean? So, so I, I struggle with the accolades from people who can't draw or can't paint or can't whatever because they have no frame of reference for whether or not that piece of art is awesome. Uh-huh. To me, the best accolade that an artist can get is from someone that they, they revere, someone that has a skill set that they are trying to attain. Uh-huh. If that person were to come out of the woodwork and say, this is amazing. And it's like, well, I know how amazing your shit is. So if you're saying this is amazing, I have arrived somewhere. Uh-huh. But for all the other people that are just like, oh, this is awesome. I'm just like, yeah, okay. I appreciate that you took the time to let me know that you enjoy it. But I, but I tend to not put a lot of stock in yeah. that. The second time that I put stock into it is when I, when I come across someone that's like, this is so amazing. I must have it. Right. I will pay you whatever the number is for that to become mine. Because then it's, and I know that sounds like it's like, a, oh, now that I can make money, I value your opinion. But that's not what it is. It's art is designed to prompt an emotional reaction, right? Whether you love it or hate it, yeah, you should do one or the other. If someone sees it and just kind of goes, eh, I've, you know, I've failed in what I've made. So when a person loves it so much or hates it so much that they feel that they have to own it, that to me is a compliment. Yeah. Now, for the most part, I never sell it. They're like, oh, I'm, I have to have it. Too bad. It's not for sale. I made this for me. <laughs> too, too this is for me. You know. Huh. Um, the stuff I put so, on my so website. You, yeah, you would just wouldn't share. You don't see that as sharing. No. The stuff I put on my website, anybody can go buy a replication of my art. They can get a print. They can have that shipped to their home. That's the form you're going to get my art. Huh. Gotcha. The original was made for me. Uh-huh. And it will remain mine. Yeah. That's not to say that there's ever been a ton of people that have ever offered to purchase one of my originals. You know what I mean? It's, I can count it on one hand the number of times that's happened in my entire life. But I do sell some replications. I do sell prints, you know, from time to time. And List the ways that people listening who want to see your art that you're willing to let them see you. <laughs> like if you don't want your Instagram looked at, obviously don't mention that. If you do want your Instagram looked at. Most of my photography goes to, photography and sketches go to Instagram. CNV Studios uh, is what it's under currently. And then, of course, you can always go to www.cnvstudios.com, which uh, is, is primarily geared towards selling photography prints and prints of the sketches and different things that I do. And then to support me directly, I have a Patreon account at patreon.com slash Cameron Van Osdale uh, that you can also get to from my website as well. And that channel, I put up finished stuff there as well, like artwork that I want to show everybody. But but that channel is actually a little bit more of a... Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a new thing for me. I'm trying to expose myself to the world a little bit more and expose the one thing that strikes me about Instagram is you never see things that are in process, 
right? It's always everybody's finished thing that's amazing and, sure. and works really well. And even when you do see in process, it's the process of the painting that looks amazing. Uh, so on my Patreon account, I kind of try to show people this is the process I went through to create this piece. Whether or not it's a good piece or not is is completely uh, up to interpretation. But it's kind of the the I try to just kind of break down my process and kind of give a little little bit of a little bit of a look behind the curtain to say this is how I think about the things that happen. Yeah. And, Which I have to say, you're a good teacher. I do credit you with setting me on a road to photo editing and graphic design. I literally will give you the credit for the fact that I can even do that. I appreciate because that. Because you're a good teacher and you showed me a bunch of things that got me going, you know, back in 2005 or whenever it was. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm glad to see that you continue to use those skills. On my Patreon account, I just kind of try to share processes and tips and techniques and reasons that I do what I do and why. And some of it's about photography. Some of it's about sketching. Some of it's about painting. Some of it's about digital painting. You know, it kind of runs the gamut of all the different things that I do. Which is good. Um, so I get in these little kicks where I might talk about sketching for a couple of months, two, three months. And then all of a sudden I just switch over to photography and Lightroom and how to edit photos and how to color correct photos and, you know, things like that. You know, those are, those are the ways to kind of find the stuff I do and keep up with what I'm doing and. Maybe you'll find something there that's valuable to you and want to learn more or do different or create something of your own. I have a lot of friends, women in particular, say to me, you need to teach me Photoshop. It's not really Photoshop anymore. The friends that say that to me, you need to teach me Photoshop. I could go to them. Actually, you need to learn Lightroom and let me point you to my friend Cameron. It's funny that you say that because uh, I am actually working on a number of videos right now that will teach kind of the basics of Lightroom and good. they're not necessarily geared towards like, Hey, here's how you do this thing. It's more geared towards here's a photograph that I'm editing. Here's what I don't like about it. Here's how I'm going to change it and make it different. So you do learn some skills while looking at my process and that and yeah. how that's done. So, well, like the old family member photo that you did ages ago, I watched that and thought it was super helpful, but there are so many beginners out there who in a way aren't even beginners yet. Right. And there's no doubt a bunch of videos out there already on YouTube. But if I can point them in a direction that I know would be useful rather than going, why don't you just go YouTube it? You know, a lot of videos that are already on YouTube. Well, it's twofold. One, they kind of take the perspective that you already know the basics, right? And they just kind of jump into this thing. And you're like, wait a minute, I don't even know how to get to that tool. I Electricians don't know to, do like, that on YouTube and they drive me crazy. I, I go in with a specific question for something electrical and wiring. They are, they don't even have the camera near and they're just talking like I know all the things. Right, and I'm right. like, no, I'm trying to figure out how to yeah. do this and I need to see it and I need to know what that word means. There's a lot of Photoshop tutorials that do that a lot. Yeah, that like pisses the, me like, off. That's like, not helpful to anybody. They'll start out with like, hey, we're going to put a displacement map on this smart object. And you're like, what the hell is a smart object and why would I want to put a displacement map on it? They, they assume a certain amount of knowledge, right? The other part of it is that they assume that you have the same problem they have. They assume that you're about to do this weird, random, one-off thing that they're about to do, you know? Yeah, no. 
they assume that you want purple clouds and I'm going to show you this really interesting way to make purple clouds out of these blue ones that, you know, and it's like, <laughs> I, I don't really care. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that I show when I'm creating something that's like, Hey, you might find this helpful. It's because it's a real problem that you're going to encounter in the photography that you're doing. You're going to encounter that photography that's like, hey, this is the wrong white balance and I have no idea how to fix it. Or this is the, what is, what the hell is that purple line that's running around the edge of their hair, you know? Or even what is white balance? Because, you know, people who have no idea how to edit a photo don't know what white balance is. And so I tend to, you know, when I'm breaking down a video or something like that, I tend to kind of go, okay, well, here's the problem. This photo's too yellow because my white balance was incorrect and white balance is how it interprets the color of the light and all of that. Then I show where that's at inside Lightroom, where the light white balance sliders are, what they do when you put them over here versus what they do when you put them over there and all that kind of stuff. I try to keep it simple to the point. I try to keep all my videos really short um, and effective. And then I try to make it If you're serious about taking photographs, or even if you're not serious, but you take a lot of photographs, you're going to run into this problem. Uh Here's how you fix it. I don't make videos that are like, oh, yeah, you want to move the head from this photo to that photo, (laughs) and you want it to be purple, and you want him to be wearing a tinfoil hat, standing on the roof, eating pancakes. And for it to look real. (laughs) Like, that's just ridiculous. And there are far too many YouTube tutorials about some outlandish comping thing that you're just not going to do. Yeah. You know, so I try to keep it grounded in reality and try to make techniques that might be valuable to you. Uh is kind of how I do it. Now when I when I do videos about art, completely different. I'm literally just showing you a lot of times I just turn on my screen recorder while I'm drawing and sometimes I don't even say anything for 20 or 30 minutes. I'm just sketching and so those videos you're literally going to hear my some mental chatter. Yeah. You're going to hear my process. You're going to see my process, hear my process, hear what I go through. Uh-huh. I will warn you there there's often some swear words in there. <laughs> I wondered if you were going to say that actually. I have a hard time when I'm doing a drawing actually talking through the drawing. I have a hard time when I'm creating art for me saying, "Oh, now I'm going to do this." Now I'm cuz sometimes I don't know what I'm going to do. Sometimes I'm like, "I know what this looks like in my head because I've seen it a thousand times." but I don't know in what order I'm actually going to draw that, Mm. right? So a lot of times there's a very free-flowing kind of thing where it's like, yeah, that kind of looks like what I see, and this kind of looks like what I see while I'm just sketching things out. And then you'll hear my thought process about... How crappy you think it is. (laughs) Yeah, how bad this is, or, or I made this mistake, or that can be fixed by doing that, or... I think I recently did a video about uh, the symmetry tool that I use a lot. And, uh-huh, you, you know, so sometimes I'll just, I'll do a, a video that's like, Hey, you probably saw me use this when I was just free, free form sketching and had no clue what it was. So let me show you how that works and why I use it. And I'll try to break out techniques into other videos, but when I'm, when I'm just creating a piece of art, I just create that art. Hopefully you'll get a technique that'll help you in what you're trying to make. Like your, um, video on shadows. I thought that was really awesome and super helpful for anybody who doesn't really know where to start. Just knowing shadows, understanding reflective light. The other thing too is my Patreon account, nine times out of 10 when I make a video, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. I just turn on the screen recorder, idea hits my head and I just start talking. 
And then I go through like 65 takes and I cut down all the best parts and I come out with a five minute video that's like, here's this thing. Took me like nine hours to make a five minute video. You know, anytime that someone has an idea or, or like, Hey, show me this or tell me that or how would you approach this problem that I have? Those are incredibly helpful for me because then I know I'm talking about a topic that someone needs help with. Right. Um, for example, I got, in, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm part of a number of learning to draw groups on Facebook and people will get into conversations all the time. People will post pictures and say, this hair looks horrific. What did I do wrong? You know, how do I make this better? That kind of thing. Those are helpful. I make videos on YouTube for those things all the time and then send them to those people to say, oh. here's how I. Here's my approach to drawing that hair. Oh, that's cool. Here's how this will be better for you, right? Here's a technique. I do that kind of thing. Is your YouTube channel CNV Studios? Yes. Okay. Yeah. My YouTube channel is also CNV Studios. But most of the stuff that I post on YouTube, I also embed into Patreon. So they're kind of in both places. Um, But yeah, I've, I've got videos on the best ways to draw hair and techniques for creating flyaways in hair and things like that that look realistic but don't take a ton of time and so if someone's got a specific problem they're trying to solve, the best thing to do is to hop over to my Patreon account and make a comment there and be like, you know, hey, I'm trying to fix this or I'm trying to do that and I don't know how. And that'll give me just kind a of reason. a reason to create yeah. that video and share that technique. Because uh, as I said earlier, I generally think that people don't really care to understand why I do what I do or, you know, so I, I don't tend to sit down and say, I need to do a video about this need to teach them about that. Yeah, that's the perfect you know, cloud thing. You know, anytime that even you, like if you're like, hey, I took this photo and there's this thing and how do I fix this purple fringe? You know, I'll crank out a two-minute video that'll My teach you. My camera takes a lot of purple fringe. So See, I can crank out a two-minute video to show you how to fix purple fringe in Lightroom and it literally takes less than two minutes. It'll take me a minute to explain it and a minute to show it and there's a technique you'll have. Do you have that video? Because we need that. Natalie needs that video. <laughs> And I hate to admit this, but you know, I already told you that I was taking pictures today of a friend and the camera I have is the camera you recommended that I buy 13 years ago. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So the technology that I'm using, I put it on my tripod today and I was like, how do I use this? I haven't used an actual camera for so long that I'm like, where the heck do I change my f stop? <laughs> I was like, wait a second. Well, I'm the same. I'm in the same boat. I use I use the same camera that I've used for the last decade. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, because you're such, I was. This sounds disparaging. Because you're such a technology whore, I totally <laughs> thought that you're probably like ten cameras past. No, no. Uh, with cameras and with lenses, your investment lasts very, very long. We're, we're kind of going down a whole nother path here. Too many people got caught up in the megapixel race of digital cameras and yeah. felt like they had to upgrade every time there was a new camera coming out. Yeah. But the reality is when you do the math, and I won't try to explain that here because we're running out of time, I think, but in order to get double the quality of a shot, you have to go up four times in megapixels, right? So a lot of people went from like a 12 megapixel to a 14. And thought they were doing awesome because they're now at 14 megapixels. It's like, no, it's marginally better. 5% better photo. 5% larger image. Right? Gotcha. Um, so unless you're going from like, you know, I shoot with a 21 megapixel camera. 
So I'd have to do four times 21 megapixels to come up with a double the quality image. For anybody that's listening that thinks that I'm full of crap right now, I am generalizing the hell out of this math right now. So there's a lot of nuance in what I'm saying, but the megapixel race is all designed to get you to buy a new camera that you don't need. I have been shooting with a Canon 5D Mark II since 5D Mark IIs were released. They're currently on a 5D Mark IV, and I believe they're about to release a 5D Mark V, and they only release a new one of those about every... I think, it's, I think they've been on about a four-year cycle, a three- to a four-year cycle of new cameras. Your camera can't upload directly to Instagram, though, right? No, it cannot. <laughs> and I wouldn't do that anyway. Yeah, like, there, That technology left me so far behind. There's so many bells and whistles on cameras now, but it's like not one of the things that they add to the current cameras make your photograph better. Not one. As a matter of fact, I learned photography in college. It was going digital. When I was in college, my final semester of college, I was shooting on black and white film, doing dark room, not the first digital cameras, but the first like affordable digital cameras were starting to hit the market right then. But I, I shot using a, uh, an SLR with a fixed 35 millimeter lens. I had no other lens available to me. I had just huh. a fixed 35 and, uh, the camera was made in like 1953 and I took amazing shots. I took great shots. Right. Huh. So my point in saying that is learn your craft. The tool that you use to execute is just that it's a tool. Uh-huh. It's more about the gear head behind the camera than it is about the gear. Yeah. So um, learn your craft and you'll know your way around a camera and you'll be able to take amazing photos with even the cheapest of cameras. Um, and that's, that's a simple truth that everybody needs to understand. I know a lot of people that are trying to get into photography and a lot of people that think, well, if I could just afford that, that better lens or that other camera, it would elevate my work. And that is not true at all. I follow a photographer named Jennifer Carter and she uses a lot of antique cameras and, and she, oh, she's not to change the subject, but talk about inspiration. She likes to photograph through things. Like she'll find random ass things and then hold it up to her camera and, and see what happens to the light. And wow, she makes magic. She really does. She's so inspiring. Yeah. And all she's doing is going, Oh, that's a weird looking thing. Let me put that in front of my well, camera well, and try and see what it can see. Well, but a more succinct way of saying that is she has a perspective. She has yes. a point of view. And that point of view and that perspective is far more important than the gear that you're shooting it with. Yeah. I've been in the trap where it's like, oh, if I could just get a 70 to 200 millimeter F2.8 lens, my, the bokeh would be so creamy and be so amazing. You know, <laughs> yes, that is true. The 70 to 200 millimeter lens is one of the best lenses on the market and it's one of the best things to ever be made. And I shoot with one in my day job, but you know what? I've never found a reason a really compelling reason to drop $1,800 on a lens. You know what I mean? So I, I, I still don't have personally a 70 to 200 millimeter lens. Huh. But if you take a stroll through my portfolio, you're never going to go, Oh my God, the like he could do so much better with a 70 to 200 millimeter. So it's all about your perspective. It's all about your point of view. And, and reality is, and maybe this is my medium. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, the reality is, it's all about the light. Uh-huh. 
You know what I mean? It's all about the light. Yeah. So the most amazing gear in the crappiest light will still turn out crappy photos. That's just all there is to it. And I have seen that happen. I have seen people with $100,000 film cameras like the Red or the Alexa turn out just some crappy, crappy footage um, because the light just sucked. And they didn't know their craft. Right. And then I've seen people with just a, you know, $2,500 digital SLR that put out footage that looks like it was shot on a million dollar budget. So learn your craft, learn your tools, know your tools inside out and backwards, and don't chase that equipment. Get to the point where you can do everything that you can do with what you have. And when you've exhausted what you have and you just can't get the look you're after with what you have, that's when you start to talk about a new lens or a new new camera body or something like that. When you're getting better than your tools. Well, yes. When yeah. when you when your perspective and your point of view and your product is better than your tools, that's when you start talking about better tools. Uh-huh. You hand Ansel Adams a potato <sighs> and he's gonna take an amazing shot. You know what I mean? And quite frankly, look at the tools that he had available to him when he was taking shots. Yeah. And you'll realize it's not about the it's not about how fancy your camera is or about how many megapixels it crams in there. You know, Ansel Adams was taking photographs with large format or medium format film that was very sensitive to light and could have been ruined at any moment with one wrong move as he pulls it out of the camera. And he was using lenses that in today's technology, the lenses he was using was like the equivalent to a pair of glasses that someone would put on their face. And he was creating amazing photography. In closing, if you're listening to this and you you say to yourself, well, I'm just not a creative person or I just don't have what it takes to you know really tell my creative vision, I think you might be listening to other people too much. And you, I agree. Might, and you might need to just take a step back and, and throw the rules out the window and just let whatever's going to happen, happen. Yeah. I would add to that, the mental chatter sometimes needs to be thrown out too. Turn the voices off. Yeah. And keep going. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you for coming. Yep, no problem. Thank I've you really enjoyed this. This has been good. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. <laughs>